Welcome to Battle Rhythm, episode 52. I'm Stephen Sademan, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Today, Stephanie Von Lackey, our co-host, uh, Professor at Queen's University is away. So we have a special guest host, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, a professor of sociology at Calgary, the director of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies, a co-director of the CDSN in our security theme, and one of the two leads of the new Canadian Network on Information and Security which is one of the new networks that is funded by D&D's Minds program. I'll be talking with Erin today about all the hats she wears, and then we'll get into some of the pressing security issues of late, including the heat out west, the ensuing fires, and what this means for climate change as a security issue. We'll talk a bit about the current stage of the pandemic and how borders are changing or shaping uh, our reality with the Olympics starting soon, but perhaps without an audience. Uh, the Calgary Stampede just started, and Erin can brief us on how that's going. And we'll talk about Afghanistan because. Uh, we're seeing the end game these days, and nobody's feeling very good about it. And then after our conversation, we'll present our interview with Dr. Sarah Shoker, who's a postdoctoral fellow at Waterloo, and she studies the security impact of emerging technologies. And as always, we'll conclude with my R&R &R segment. So, Aaron, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for inviting me to join you. My pleasure. This is long overdue. And perhaps it's long overdue because I wanted to see how many hats you can, can collect. First, let's talk about what, what do you do as the director of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies out west in Calgary? When we actually added the word security to our center title, it used to be Center for Military and Strategic Studies. Now it is Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. And this idea by adding the extra S, we still usually say CNSS, but the, um, the, the orientation behind the extra S in security was to broaden and expand the, uh, the types of research that we might undertake at the center. I became director in 2019, and one of the first tasks that, that I had with the fellows was to create a strategic plan. So along with that strategic plan, we identified four areas that we thought we would concentrate on. And those four areas are 21st century security. So that's that S in the new S in our name, national security and defense, conventional and unconventional warfare and conflict, and a fourth area, which is human rights, peace and development. So some of these things we actually do and some of them are aspirational. So the human rights piece and development, we don't have a large number of fellows currently working in that area, but we developed that area and, and added it to our selection of thematic areas. We hope to entice people to join CNSS and become fellows because we're interested in broadening the scope of what we do beyond sort of the more traditional historical military history orientation that we had in the defense orientation that we had through political science. So your center is now focused more on security issues broadly defined, not so much just military security. So given that you're out West, I guess your center and the people around you have been paying a lot of attention to the heat wave that hit the West Coast and the fires. And so what is your take on climate change as a, as a security issue? Do you no longer have to make the argument that it's a security issue because it's patently obvious or are people still resisting thinking about uh, climate change as a security issue? 
Well, I think for many of us, it's pretty obvious, but I think there's still some way to go to convince others that it's as obvious. But some of the, the information that I've drawn on for understanding climate change as it relates to security is uh, comes from that document, the Canada's Changing Climate Report from 2019. And it's pretty clear that uh, Canada is experiencing climate change. And we in particular are experiencing climate change at a rate that may be different than many countries around the world, simply because of our proximity to the Northern hemisphere. But the thing that the, that report emphasizes is that there's going to be uneven effects of climate change across Canada and globally, of course, because of our proximity, the, uh, you know, the receding glaciers, less ice coverage, all of that sort of thing, reduced print spring snow cover. That's all going to impact us in various ways, but unevenly, of course, across the country. That, uh, that document specifically talks about the impacts to the Arctic and to the northwest part of, of Canada with rising sea levels and that sort of thing. And I think one of the other things that is mentioned in that document is the, these fluctuations in temperatures. And certainly we're, uh, we experienced that last week, and apparently we're going into another one soon here, but these are unheard of temperatures. Lytton, BC, I think it was, you know, poofed, you know, <laughs> went into flames last week after recording the highest temperature that, that's been experienced in Canada. Yeah, and, the, and you speak of the uneven nature of this in that I was expecting your heat wave to become our heat wave, but it really did not. We did not, we did not get such an extreme blast of heat after, after what the, the West and, and central parts of Canada got hit by. But yeah, we talk about Lytton. What is more a threat to individual lives? I mean, a town got wiped out by the fires. And before that, there were a number of Canadians who lost their lives uh, due to the heat stroke and, and other heat-related uh, medical issues. And the casualties from this heat wave vastly outnumber, you know, terrorist attacks upon Canadians, I think, at this point, at least in, in recent times. I mean, and, and particularly terrorist attacks that emanate from the Middle East. I mean, our, the terrorist attacks that we're getting these days are emanating from Canada, from right-wing groups, uh, from white supremacists from incels. And so when we think about what the Canadian military is for, we think about what the Canadian defense and security establishment is for, it was not built and aimed at either the far right people in, in Canada and North America, or and it was not aimed at weather. It was not aimed at heat. It was not aimed at firestorms created by lightning that was indeed in turn created by the heat. I mean, the, the imagery and just the reality that you had thunderstorms over the West that were purely created by the heat. And so therefore they didn't provide any solace through rain. It just provided more lightning to cause more things to burn. Yeah. It's just astonishing. It is. I've had limited experience with forest fire when I was a child living in Swan Hills, Alberta. We actually had to be evacuated from a forest fire that was going on at that point. And it's very scary. And of course, my childhood memory, it was scary, but it was the feeling of it that was most scary because my father had worked for a, um, an oil company at that point and he, we had to evacuate the town without him. And it was, it was awful. But it, my memory, of course, has faded over time, I think, fortunately, in this instance. But the images that you see of these fires today, are, they are infernos and they're so intense. And this fire that I experienced, it was in the distance, you know, smoke billowing up. Mm -hmm in the, uh, the kind of hills that were far away. But it's, um, it's a very scary thing. And to think that this might actually continue into the future is, is really scary. But I think it does call into question the things with respect to what we, how we perceive security, but also more specifically, what we think the military should be doing. 
So if they are going to be now addressing future forest fires or floods or that sort of thing, it's calls into question how they should be trained. So I'm not sure that wielding a gun is as important these days as knowing how to, you know, dig a trench. I'm not sure, but it really does, I think, impact how they might be trained and what we think they're going to help us with. Yeah, I think the the real challenge is is not so much what they're trained, but the, just that how disruptive this is to their training cycles. Yes, that is that they they learn how to dig trenches for warfare as well as for firefighting. But one of the things that struck me is that our current acting CDS, when he was chief of the army before the pandemic, said that the climate change induced emergencies was causing an increase in the tempo of operations for the Canadian Armed Forces, and that was being making it harder to do what they we're supposed to be doing, which was training for the next operation abroad, essentially. And so ice storms, fires, floods, all the stuff is getting more intense and more frequent. And then you add on to it a pandemic. And this means that uh, the force has to spend more of his time doing that sort of thing. And they already do some planning. And I, as I understand it, they, they have changed their planning cycles to take into account the regular need to stop what they're doing and help out with flood relief. Right. The nice thing about floods is that they we know when they happen most of the time. Maybe that'll change a little bit with climate change, but generally the timing's fairly fairly obvious. I guess that's going to have to be the case for fire as well, is that there are fire seasons and that fire seasons are going to get longer. They're going to start earlier and probably go later than they used to. But they're going to have to start thinking about, OK, we have planning for various military, you know, just training artillery fire or, or combined operations. But we're going to have to change the timing of it so it happens, A, at a time where we're not busy fighting fires, and B, at a time where we're not causing fires. Now, I don't think we've had any fires come from the exercises at Fort Rainwright. But if you're throwing around artillery shells and doing all that kind of stuff, you're now presenting a hazard if, if things are increasingly dry. So I think that's something they have to think about. I think one thing that they're also have to change is a mindset, which is glory, honor, promotion is all gained by doing things abroad in expeditionary operations. And they're going to have to start thinking about how to reward and incentivize doing the work at home because they're going to be doing more of it. And you got to change the culture so that way people don't see that as being a tertiary enterprise, but a core part of the mission. I mean, it's always been one of the four major priorities in every defense review, but it's not treated that way as far as I understand that the people I've talked to within the military see these domestic operations as being a distraction. I think that we're going to have to change that mindset and that attitude because they're going to be doing it more and we need to change it. Either that or an alternative is to develop the equivalent of what the United States has, which is a federal emergency management agency, right? Have a FEMA, have a domestic lure and things. There are bits and pieces of that in Canada, but there, there's not really a standing capacity to send lots of trained bodies into harm's way when something is going on, whether that's a flood or a fire. Yeah, I think that some of this relates to the whole idea of jurisdiction and who actually is responsible for what. Maybe I'm on a sort of a one-track mind, but all the, so many of these security issues really reflect issues of jurisdiction. And is it really the, the jurisdiction of the military to be dealing with, you know, provincial issues such as floods? You know, there are some issues with respect to when is the time to call the military to come in and, you know, sorting out exactly who's got the responsibility for it and who needs to make decisions. But I think sometimes in, in uh, a lot of these perhaps climate related issues, the responsibility and who has jurisdiction to deal with these things is not evident, but will have to become increasingly evident if we deal with because we're likely to see more of these issues. 
Absolutely. There, the King Armed Forces does have does have a relationship with the various emergency managers in all provinces and cities, mm-hmm. but I don't think the politicians at the top of the chain, uh, the, the the premiers, really understand this stuff. They come in, they're more focused on other things, then an emergency comes up. Whereas the the emergency managers lower down the chain have greater expertise in in that relationship. One of the things the CDSN is trying to do is trying to get funding to do more work in this area to figure out how to manage these jurisdictional issues when the capacity is at the federal level and the authority is at the local level. And that's been a pandemic problem. Aaron, one of the big new hats you're wearing is as the co-director with J.C. Boucher of CANIS, the Canadian Network on Information and Security. What are you guys going to be doing? What's the challenge? What are you going to try to be figuring out? Well, we have a number of challenges, but we've kind of uh, organized the team so that we're looking at various dimensions of uh, information and misinformation and disinformation through basically four lenses. So the first lens is going to be a political military lens. Cognitive behavioral is a second lens. Technological is the third and a legal ethical lens that is, of course, led by a lawyer. Um, and the technical lens is led by somebody who's in uh, computer engineering. So the, the types of things that we're looking at is the space, cyberspace information as operational domains, where we're going to look at foreign policy interests and information-rich environments, uh, information in a multicultural society. We're looking at the rise of the gray zone conflict, where we look at offensive and defensive dimensions of information and dis and misinformation in the face of crises. And then in terms of the third challenge, and these are the MINDS challenges, the structure of the MINDS program, anticipating future challenges was, is looking at the evolving importance of information in a digital world. So basically anything that has to do with the interpretation of information and how information can be spun and reinterpreted and misinterpreted given various angles that people are trying to drive at us with. I guess the most contemporary problem that that you're looking at or or inspired this kind of research is the pandemic, the information, misinformation, disinformation about the vaccines, about the disease, how the stuff spreads, that has been breeding resistance to masking, breeding resistance to lockdowns, breeding resistance to vaccinations. Yeah, we, it was also inspired to a certain degree by, uh, you know, the information and disinformation surrounding the election, mm-hmm. the American uh, election and the, the suggestion that they are in reality, I suppose, that the uh, Russians were interfering and, mm-hmm. and launching bots and that sort of thing to misinform the, the American public. And, and we're also concerned about that, obviously, in Canada with election issues potentially coming in the future, not in the future, but this fall, more specifically. Well, if there is an election this fall, who knows? If there is, yes. <laughs> yes. But, but yes, I guess uh, the, the Trump era and Brexit has taught us that, that there are actors out there that will try to organize things to disrupt democracy. So the information domain, as the military types call it, is really a key battleground. And so your network is aiming to understand all the different dimensions of what cause misinformation and disinformation to spread and potentially what the government could do about it. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that we were really concerned about was trying to ensure that we're not coming at this from just one angle, mm-hmm. that all the events that we have are going to be sort of this multidisciplinary or have a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. perspective attached to it. So we have three main types of activities that we've proposed for the network. The first is a conference 
where we will have at least four sessions involving those different dimensions. But the idea would be that we're going to attend each other. So even though we might not be uh, computer engineers, we'll at least have a sense of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So we have a conference, we have a hackathon that is going to take place as well. Uh, that's a, a separate event and it, it tends to be a technological type thing, but then we're gonna have the interpretations through the political lens, mm -hmm. the legal and ethical lenses as well. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third thing that we're going to have is a summer school. So we're looking at ways that we can bring in elements of those four perspectives to bear on teaching the uh, new scholars and young scholars. And what's strange about this is the proliferation of networks. Yours, yes, uh, the CDSN, I know RSA is also thinking about doing summer institutes. All of us have spent our entire careers trying to avoid teaching the summers, and now we're grabbing onto it. So an interesting uh, development that we're all facing. I know. Now, if we could just put all of these network summer schools together and then offer people a degree after yeah. they take all of these things, we have it made. Oh, but all that comes with administration and uh, ministering a new curricula, a new degree. That's true. Uh, but uh, I thank you for, uh, for clarifying this, because I think uh, it was very clear that over the past year, there's been a variety of controversies about the role of the Canadian Armed Forces in the information space. And I think that it makes far more sense, actually, to have a, academics work with partners in and out of government to figure out the information space in Canada. I think people will be a little less concerned about, about you guys mucking about in that, that environment than, than having the military do so. Yeah, part of the MINDS networks, as you know, is that we are supposed to be pairing up with uh, not only academics, but uh, industry people, government, and we involve as many different perspectives, not just within those uh, four areas that I've identified, but from different realms. So from academics to military to in industry people as well. So we all should have a say in these networks. Uh, so let's move on to the pandemic since it has some of the same kinds of dynamics. The big news lately has been opening things up with pace of vaccinations. We're now at, depending on how you count, near 75% vaccinated one shot and approaching 50% or over 50% depending on where you live. Second shot, although a lot of those are recent, we're not you know, fully vaccinated as a country in terms of the two shots plus two weeks until a few weeks from now that, that you know, the rates are sort of behind that. Although right. I'm, happy, I'm happy to say since my last Battle Rhythm podcast, I did reach the two shots in two weeks. So I am footloose and fancy free. I now have a haircut. Moved from being a super shaggy. The last time I had my hair like that was probably when I was 16 to back to normal. I've been to a hardware store. I actually went out to dinner with my wife. Uh, although we, we were in a patio, we did not go inside. But I am planning on going to the movie the movies as soon as the movies do open up. So we are making progress. So have you visited Stampede? Are you going to be stampeding? I have not visited the Stampede, but I, I found the discussion about COVID very interesting regarding the Stampede because the, uh, you know, Stampede has sort of been characterized as, you know, we're cutting new frontiers and we're path breaking and that sort of thing sort of reflect the initial establishment and celebration of, of Stampede. So they, they have suggested that they are not using their same measures of success because in years prior, it was the more people you could pack into the ground, the more <laughs> there was of success. We don't know anything about headcount this year. So they pulled back on that as a measure of success. So what they're suggesting when you go to Stampede is that you have to prove that you have at least one vaccination. And if you can't produce the paperwork for that, then you have to submit to uh, an immediate test at that particular point. I'm not so sure though, I, I can only reflect on my, uh, my kid's anecdotal experience going down, but he had his paper 
work in, in line, but one of his friends forgot to bring it, so he had to wait for the test, but they didn't get the results for two hours. So I don't know exactly what they were doing between the time that they got the results and took the test. But they, they are suggesting that they, they pulled back on a number of people and established wider walkways, there's signage, hand sanitizing, and all the staff are supposed to be wearing masks. So this is uh, their approach to at least opening something up. Uh, I don't know if you were aware out uh, east about the dismay last year to have to actually cancel Stampede, but for Calgarians, it's a big deal. So there's this talk that there could be no chance of delaying it or, or not having it this year. Like it was really, there's a lot of talk about how it had to go on. So this is the, the measure. So not packing as many people in to have these uh, various measures in place. Whether or not it'll work, they say that of the 22,000 tests or something that they had done, I had seen one figure, five came back positive. They say that those, those people were escorted off the grounds. But again, if you're there for two hours before you get a result, I don't know how that works in terms of the uh, potential spread. Yeah, well, if you go the Tokyo solution, which is to ban spectators almost entirely, the only people who will be spectating at the Tokyo Olympics will be essentially staffs of the organizers and the sponsors and folks like that, because Japan just issued a new emergency rules because their pandemic is escalating. Japan has been behind on vaccinations, just like Australia and New Zealand. Some of the places that did the best in the first wave or two or three did not hop on to the vaccinations fast. Speaking of drawing lines, one of the challenges right now is how long do we fight a war? And so the one of the big stories in, in Canadian Defense and Security this week is looking back and figuring out whether it was all worth it. And I think that's a big issue that we can't really address in the time we have left today. But uh, the issue of the day is, is how do we help the Afghans now? And so I'm curious as to your your reactions to the news of, well, the U.S. pulling out and the Taliban being more successful in gaining some territory. I think uh, this is a, a major issue. But the, the, some of the questions that were or have been raised for me about this, is, there's been criticism that this has been obviously a very long war. So I, I always believe that we should be undertaking objective assessments of what we gained and what we lost mm -hmm. and what was the goal and do our indicators of success actually match the goal. So in my uh, perception, it seems like that there was differing different goals being sort of talked about as this, as this 20 years has gone on. And therefore, measures of success have also changed. But I think an assessment of that is needed. So where did we start out? And did we achieve that initial goal? The, at the end, 20 years later, we, I think some of those initial goals were, were achieved, such as you know, getting rid of bin Laden. But have we actually achieved what the more recent rhetoric has suggested, that Afghanistan is being left in a better place that has you know, more rights for women and that sort of thing? And, I'm not sure that that has has been achieved or not, and I, I would I I think it's worrisome to think that the Taliban might actually gain control and then set whatever gains there were or eliminate those gains. So there's I think a lot of questions to be asked, but. The other questions that have come up for me too have to do with, you know, how much time and resources and energy do allies spend on supporting others, <laughs> supporting their allies. So I don't know, but that has to go back with the assessment thing. So each uh, participant in that war has to look at this individually and say, was it worth it for us? Did we achieve what we thought we were going to achieve? And if not, 
should we avoid these things next time? Or, you know, again, that this notion of allyship, we're, if we're all in it together, maybe we have to look at those collective goals. But I think there's different angles and different ways you can look at this, mm. but it's, it's uh, worrisome. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge is that if our goal was to build a self-sustaining Afghan government, we failed. Yes. I mean, well, we'll see. If they can hold off these attacks, then we'll be more successful. I, I think you know, when I looked forward to, in 2014, I wondered how long things would take. Yeah. And is 2021 a good outcome? I think, you know, the, the challenge is Canada made a difference while they were there, but we left and what was it, what we did sustainable? Was it done in a way that, that can keep on going? And the problem with these kinds of endeavors is they require the domestic politics stuff to work out domestic politics stuff there to work out and outsiders can't fix that and they can help provide space for it to happen but we made a lot of mistakes they made a lot of mistakes our allies made a lot of mistakes that made this harder than it had to be but even if it were everything was done right it would be really really hard and so we created breathing space for some time and that's what we did and is that worth the blood and treasure of canadians it's easy for us as academics to say so it's a little harder uh, to say so if you know people who put their lives on the line who either died or, or, uh, sure. or were, were wounded uh physical mental emotional wounds from this war um i think if the goal was to support an ally after an ally had been intact i think we did that i think that that's the way i sort of defined it when i wrote about this for my book that 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 really was why we went it was not about we didn't care about afghanistan we cared about the united states yeah the irony is, is that a lot of this was motivated to keep the border open with the United States. We've been keeping it closed despite what the Americans have wanted for the past year. But I think we did what our ally wanted us to do in the aftermath of an attack upon the United States. And Canadians did die in 9-11. And so we do have an interest in mm-hmm. fighting terrorism. But what has evolved over the past 20 years is the terrorist threat is not there. It's here. And I'm not saying that the stuff that we dedicated to Afghanistan could have been used to fight the folks back here. I don't think the CAF is really the, the Canadian Armed Forces are really the means by fighting white supremacy in Canada. I think these are problems mostly for police departments at all levels, for political units at all levels to deal with. It's a societal problem. It's a political problem. It's not a military problem. So I'm not saying that we can't do both things. But I think politically, we need much more attention now at the, on the home fight because Canadians are dying due to terrorism launched by Canadians. It's not people from abroad crashing planes into our buildings. It's people shooting up mosques and synagogues and driving over people and all that sort of stuff that's going on here. So one of the things that the CDSN is doing in the months ahead is we are going to have a couple of things going on around 9-11, the anniversary, it's the 20th anniversary coming up, and we're going to look backwards and try to figure out what we did right, what we did wrong, and what we can do better in the future so that way we make Canadians safer without threatening their liberties, uh, without too much theater. You know, every time I go to the grocery store now, I watch them all wipe down everything five times. And I'm like, we know the disease didn't spread that way. Yeah. And the same thing with going to the airports of, okay, is this really the thing we need to be spending our money and time on is, is looking at, you know, taking my shoes off. We need to figure out the risks, the, the real risks to us and, and how, to, how to address those. And a lot of them are uncomfortable because the risks are coming from one side of the local spectrum, mostly. Yeah, it's, uh, and my comment about assessment, you know, it's easy to look back over the past 20 years and say, what did we do right and what we did we do wrong? But I think if we can train ourselves to be doing that more frequently, mm-hmm. you know, throw an effort, like as you were just saying, with respect to the pandemic, if we know that hand wiping and, you know, bottles of sanitation or whatever are not really the answer, 
then we need to be able to adjust instead of getting into the rut of because it's there and because we know that it used to work, that it will still work going forward. But it's difficult, I think, for all of us to be assessing things as we go and then redirecting. It's, you know, it's like a cruise ship. Point yourself in a certain direction and to change course is really difficult. But we mm -hmm. have to be a little bit more lean in terms of how we might look at what we're doing, I think. Well, I think that's a, a good note to end on about how, how we need to think a little bit about the future. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today, Aaron. I really wish you luck in getting Canis, the Canadian Network on Information and Security, launched. I can only tell you that that running a network is an awesome enterprise, awesome in both senses of the word. It's a terrific opportunity for you to meet people and to do great things, but it also means a, a lot of responsibility. So uh, I wish you luck in, in, in juggling all your hats. And uh, I think you, you and JC, uh, her partner in this is Jean-Christophe uh, Boucher. You guys are going to do great things. I, I definitely think there's much need to, to clear up the information space in Canada and, and figure out how to, how to deal with disinformation and misinformation. We didn't really touch those aspects of the pandemic, but obviously those are, are crucial for understanding, in part, the vaccination hesitancy in the United States compared to Canada. So maybe we'll talk about that the next time. Sounds uh, good. All right. Take care and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you, Steve. You have a good summer, too. Today at Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Sarah Shoker, a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Waterloo, and she was one of our capstone laureates this past year, and so we thought, thought we'd have her on the podcast to talk a little bit more about her work and what she's doing now. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Hi. The first question is, is what did you tell us way, way, way back? You know, time is strange in this pandemic, but not everybody who listened to the podcast downloaded our uh, capstone event, so tell us a little bit about what you presented there. Sure. So I presented on human machine teams in military environments. I'm really interested in algorithmic warfare and also in algorithmic discrimination in uh, high technology military environments. So this started with um, an interest in drone warfare and counterinsurgency generally. That was Those were the topics that I investigated while I was doing my PhD at McMaster University. And specifically, I, I was looking at drone warfare using a, a gendered analytical lens trying to answer and specifically that that was that men and boys sometimes referred to as military age males in military environments um, were excluded from the collateral damage count under the obama administration and there was also strong evidence that they were systematically undercounted under the bush administration as well during the turn to counterinsurgency so i was interested in understanding why and how this decision was justified. And completely by accident, the dissertation turned into a dissertation about big data and emerging and emerging technologies. Because though my primary interest, of course, is in civilian protection, it's, it's really difficult to talk about counterinsurgency and drones without talking about data, surveillance, technologies, sensors, and, and predictive analytics more generally. And now, of course, we, we talk about artificial intelligence. And Given my interest in understanding some of the gender ramifications of systematically undercounting boys and men in violent conflict, I think the natural continuation of that was to start to look at algorithmic discrimination and bias. And my PhD also covered a little bit of that, and that's certainly been one of the major focuses of my postdoctoral fellowship right now. So you, you talk about algorithmic bias. What do you mean by that? 
Uh, sure. So uh, I'm sure your listeners have probably encountered a news story or so, whether it's about machine vision being unable to identify Black individuals or uh, in cases of algorithms that are used by legal jurisdictions predominantly within the United States that will predict that Black defendants are more likely to commit crime again and how those decisions will influence judges when it comes to the granting of parole. Um, when we're talking about algorithmic bias, what we're often talking about is, is unfairness and algorithms that do not meet the standards of fa fairness as are socially understood by society. So all algorithms, because they're statistical tools, right? So bias in this particular context is not, isn't necessarily a negative thing. The point is to intervene in a particular demographic group. There are technologies that are deployed within a socio-technical context. But when we're talking about algorithmic bias, what we're usually referring to is some form of unfairness that does not meet the standards that have been decided upon within a liberal democratic society. And so when it particularly comes to drone warfare, what does this mean? Sure. So within international humanitarian law, generally speaking, if you are caught in violent conflict, you're assigned one of two identities. You're either a combatant or you're a civilian. Gender, age, um, ethnicity, these are not these are not identity categories that should influence whether or not you are considered to be a, a combatant. There are obviously some um, exceptions for, for children because of their uh, of status as, as being particularly vulnerable. But being a man or a boy should not necessarily be used as a cognitive shortcut for assigning combatant status. And U.S. military practitioners both understand that this is a problem, and they've also been, I think, pretty vocal after after some of the criticism that has been leveraged upon upon the discovery that military age males were uh, discounted from the collateral damage count. They have been pretty vocal that soldiers should not be targeting or using signifiers, a technical, you know, a, a military identifier as a shorthand for assigning combatant status. However, this, this problem does still persist. When it comes to predictive analytics or any kind of big data solution, the technology has a tendency to amplify social biases. It, you know, AI is not magic. What ends up happening is that within data, within those patterns that are already trained, because of course there's a training set, generally you have to, a human being is responsible for training the data that is mm -hmm. used in, within any kind of um, AI software. What ends up happening is that if, if the training set is biased or if the collection, the collection process of that data has also been biased, then you are going to have biased outcomes. And that's why th that the adage of garbage in, garbage out has become quite, <laughs> has, has, you know, has become, yeah, I guess I'd say it's become a trope within, within the data science community. You can only work with an AI that is as good as the training that it's, that it's fed, the data that it's fed. I guess what's surprising to me is there was there were controversies in the Obama administration about signature strikes, that there was a certain pattern of behavior that would be good enough to trigger, if not a strike, at least the consideration of a strike. And it seems to me that your the discussion of your research is that even if you move beyond that particular way things were done, it's still baked into or wired into these drone strikes that, you know, the system is biased towards certain targets. And so even if you're not just sort of targeting large groups of young males just because they're large groups of young males. There's other more subtle things that are that are in the systems that lead to uh, uh, attacks against certain groups of people. Is, is that fair to say? 
Yes, because I mean, even within those, within signature strikes, what they're trying to identify are so-called behavioral anomalies, but those behavioral anomalies are in themselves gendered. So I conducted interviews with with former service members uh, with the U.S. military, and I asked them about this question, and the responses they gave to me were maybe, depending on who you are, shocking or not surprising, right? So for instance, if, if you are a gathering of, of men and boys and women are not there within that particular context, you're more likely to be considered suspect in some way. And I think we saw that with the recent French strike in Mali, where they tried to discredit uh, certain investigations into that strike that said what you struck was actually was actually a wedding. And the reason why the party was struck was because they didn't actually see women and children within that gathering. Actually, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves whether that actually meets the threshold of evidence that we, we want to be using when we are targeting individuals, right? Mm. And then the other thing that my respondents ended up revealing was commanders actually addressed this particular question, used what I call bad anthropology anthropology to justify uh-huh. this, this, this decision. So within the context of signature strikes, these are generally occurring within Muslim majority countries, right? Women and men are sometimes segregated within Muslim majority countries when it comes to social affairs. And this particular respondent that I'm thinking of told me that when boys become men, they move from the private sphere the sphere of women to the public sphere, the sphere of men. And if you are a feminist security scholar, then, uh, you know, maybe this is actually not very surprising to you because these are definitely old echoes. <laughs> there are definitely old echoes here with feminist theorizing, even mm-hmm. from the 1980s. But it was still, I mean, this, this, was, this was how they rationalized it, right? So as soon as you become a man, that is, the perception was that, well, you are old enough to fight. And the military-aged male is still a military identifier. And it doesn't even, it doesn't only refer to to men who have reached the age of majority, right? This is anyone above the age of, of 16, not up to, up to seniority, right? So we're also talking about minors, about minors going into the field potentially, but using bad anthropology, they say, well, according to so-called Muslim culture, which Mm -hmm. is already problematic. We're operating in a variety of different countries right now. And to homogenize Muslim-majority communities like that is is already problematic. But the assumption was that, well, according to Muslim culture, as soon as you're a boy and you transition to manhood and you no longer spend time with the women in the private sphere, then, you know, basically you are considered to be as someone who's potentially involved in hostilities. And again, is that you know, is that the standard of evidence that we want, that we want to be using? So when when we're talking about drone strikes, and when we're also talking about counterinsurgency, counterinsurgents on the ground told me after I asked them, well, how exactly do you verify age? How do you know that the person you're, you're targeting is, you know, 18 and over? And the response really was, well, we, we don't. It's it's very difficult to tell to tell age, and with signature strikes, it's essentially preemptive, right? You're you're trying to determine whether somebody poses a threat to you based on their behavior. So you don't necessarily know their identity. You don't know their name prior to to the attack. Sometimes you do after the fact, but mm. a number of people do not have their identities confirmed. So essentially, we're targeting boys and men using a cognitive short using gender as a cognitive shortcut. Mm -hmm. We're not very good at knowing how old these boys and men are. And this is all happening in an environment where we are in high technology and precision weapons. The argument being that this investment is necessary 
so that we can properly identify civilians from combatants. And yet this mistake occurs despite this despite this investment. So I think in some in some ways this really challenges our ideas about whether precision weapons and weaponry and certainly this this narrative goes back to back to to smart to smart bombs and any mm-hmm. kind of precision weaponry it's not unique to drone warfare but I think this really challenges our idea of whether or not greater investment in in high technology warfare is actually the solution to greater discrimination between civilians and combatants. And in this case, I'm using discrimination positively. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, is that what you're finding is that they game the entire process by saying that, okay, anybody who's male of a certain age counts as a combatant. And so therefore we are wildly undercounting the non-combatants who are targeted and basically violate an international law because we're not doing what we need to do to discriminate between those who are fair targets of warfare and those who are not. Like the retort, I think, to that to that assertion would be, well, no, no, we don't assume that all boys and men above a certain age are, are combatants. But then in practice, what ends up happening is that if you are in the same space as a combatant or as someone perceived to be a combatant, then you are counted as a combatant, regardless of of your behavior. And that's why when you end up having women in a particular space or very small children to the point where there is really no confusion about their age, then all of a sudden that collection of men becomes less suspicious. And so you are less likely to be targeted with with a drone strike. Still makes me feel queasy because it seems like we're, the idea is we're still targeting people who are their only real indicator that they are a potential counterinsurgent, I'm sorry, insurgent is because they're they're male. And that, that seems to be a, a mighty, mighty low bar. Yes. So again, I mean, I think from a legal perspective on paper and a bureaucratic perspective, none of this is, is really enshrined. No one is out there saying target military aged males. No one would ever say, please use gender as a cognitive shortcut. No one tells operators to 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 bring in their social baggage and those stereotypes, you know, into the operation, (laughs) into their operational um, space with them. Right. But in practice, it's it's very different. And that's problematic. Yeah, I think it's very problematic. we've, We've learned enough about counterinsurgency that. It really is discrimination is the thing of discriminating between those who are genuinely involved, not just those who are, gen- who, who are in the same larger category of people who might be involved. And we do more damage to the counterinsurgency effort by making mistakes of this kind. And so it, there's, it's not just the legal and moral problem. It's also a, a efficiency or efficacy problem of this is the kind of behavior that makes things harder for, for the counterinsurgents. It doesn't make things easier by just hitting random males because they happen to be in the wrong configuration. Well, that's exactly it. And I, I mean, really, the the argument that supports why these technologies were needed in the first place is because you know, the U.S. and allies were having a, a difficult time distinguishing mm-hmm. uh, insurgents from the larger civilian population, right? This was a move towards population-centric warfare. At the beginning, when I said I didn't realize when I first started my PhD that I'd be doing a dissertation about big data, this is this is really what I mean. Mm-hmm. Because I was talking about civilian protection and civilian identification. Well, how do you identify civilians? Well, you need greater loiter times, you need better sensors, you need better visual fidelity, you need to be able to follow your targets. And 
so you know this high tech solution became the method mm-hmm. by which to deter by which to identify insurgents from that larger civilian population but what you end up really having are bill scanning visual data and needing some kind of method when they're looking at that visual data to identify who is and is not a civilian. So you look at behavioral patterns and behavioral patterns are gendered. And so they start using basically masculinity and masculine modes of behavior as a proxy for determining combatant status. And it's the wrong proxy to be using, frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, this gets to a larger tendency in uh, American and, and Western warfare, which is to find you know, technological and capital-intensive solutions to problems that are really require lots of labor and time and effort. And it turns out these shortcuts are not really particularly good for what we're trying to do. And so I guess this is really what your book is about. Your book came out last year, and it's on, on this kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, heavily based on my PhD dissertation, but when I was f- first writing my PhD, last chapter where I was really talking about the future of war, and within those short months, I, I had my book contract basically immediately after I was done. The field, you know, the innovation landscape right now when it comes to AI was moving so fast, so I had to revise revise it quite extensively. And even since it was published in October 2020, I, I would say, you know, if I was to ever do another edition, it would look I would say pr- pretty different. <laughs> uh, it's just it, the, the field is moving just that fast. Yeah, and I guess what's interesting is is that you are now an expert on sort of bias and technology, which is not what you went into grad school for. And so you created a consulting firm called Glassbox. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So as I was approaching uh, the end of my PhD, I realized that I had something and that in government, especially within the Canadian context, we're aware of how some of these biases could potentially translate into uh, into the data set. And right now, internationally, we are talking about lethal autonomous weapon systems, but it took a while for bias in AI to actually make it to those discussions. Uh, the primary focus was on you know, the appropriate level of human control and things like that. So it's been about, oh gosh, these discussions are what now, 10 years? <laughs> mm. <laughs> they've, been, they've been going on. I mean, it feels it feels like forever at this point. Um, and of course, we still can't, uh, we still have not determined a definition <laughs> that should underpin lethal autonomy uh, in weapon systems. But but in either case, it, it occurred to me that I had something to contribute within, within this space. And bias in AI commercially, it, it parallels what's happening with on the military side. It's not as though or algorithmic discrimination within military technologies rely on a vastly different architecture than what's already available, you know, in private industry. In many cases, you know, what what the military is doing is actually contracting out pri- private contractors, right? So I thought, well, I can I can set up this consultancy to try and raise awareness to train. I, my my primary sites were on were on government, but also industry who wanted to bring maybe a social lens to to some of these what I would characterize and what I think is now largely accepted as a, a socio technical problem and. Uh, in Canada has one of the, you know, as, as a country has, it's incredibly easy to incorporate, <laughs> to incorporate uh, uh, in, in Canada. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what I did. And since then, I would say that the field surrounding algorithmic bias and discrimination has, has really exploded within mm-hmm. the United States, especially. But in Canada, there's, of course, a lot 
a lot more discussion about some of these challenges. When I first, the, towards the end of my PhD within, within Can within the Canadian context, hardly anyone was talking about it. And it was just starting to emerge on the American side. So uh, yeah, within three to five years, I, I would say that the landscape surrounding this discussion is, is very different and seems at this point anyway, not a day goes by where I don't really see a news story about algorithmic discrimination in one form or another. And so is there a particular case or, or manifestation of this in Canada that's been catching your eye? Oh, I don't know if I'd say there's only one. <laughs> so... Canada, of course, we're, we, we're talking very openly about uh, acquiring, well, drones, right? Because they're part of their the ISR technologies, their intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance technologies. And whenever we talk about military modernization, we are, we are talking about ISR. In the Canadian case, anyway, we would be purchasing these, these drones from, from U.S. counterparts. So I think prior to the purchasing of, of ISR, uh, ISR technologies from, from the United States, we, we do need to have a really frank discussion about how algorithmic discrimination can enter into the decision-making and technical pipeline. And it's especially problematic for individuals, caught, civilians caught in violent conflict who are additionally marginalized because these technologies rely on, on surveillance. It's data collected by the through the monitoring of individuals who have really no capacity con to consent. They, they don't you know, individuals in Iraq and Yemen, they're, they're not, you know, in Afghanistan, they, they don't really have an influence on our politicians. They can't vote. They don't have a say in our elections, right? So, but at the same time, there's this argument, liberal democratic norms, specifically mm -hmm. the principle of distinction and civilian protection is maintained through what has meant practically more and more surveillance of, of people that have no capacity to say nay or yay to that to being monitored. So that's already a really, a really huge ethical conundrum. I, apart from that, policing is, of course, uh, a, a huge, a huge issue. There are cases in, uh, you know, in Saskatchewan and in Ontario where we, we are collecting or using government data about children within within experimental trials this was actually reported on by motherboard last last year if i'm recalling correctly for the purpose i mean ostensibly these are all these are all well-intentioned right like i, I that's mm -hmm. i, I want to emphasize that every time we talk about these technologies the goal is often to create better outcomes and so it's not as though we have actors who are intentionally trying to perpetuate harm these are unintended harms. However, they, you know, you can still prepare for them. But in, in this particular case that I'm, I'm referring to, the, the goal was so that, you know, police can potentially intervene prior to a child going missing, or if they locate a child that is, you know, at risk of, of being abused in, in some kind of way. And people might say, well, that's great. I mean, I don't want a child to go missing. I don't want, I, I don't want to perpetuate child abuse, but the ethical question becomes, you know, should we actually be using child data? Should government agencies be surrendering um, child data to police services? And yet, yeah, such as in the, in the case of Saskatchewan, I think those are really important questions that we have not yet answered collectively as, you know, as, as, as Canadians, you know, these questions are only going to, to further be further intensified. And of course, any kind of machine vision algorithm used by police to try and identify, to, to try and identify, you know, defendants or, you know, criminals, whatever terminology you'd like to use, 
also potentially problematic because, you know, the majority of them, there's always going to be a margin of error, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a confusion matrix. We're talking about basic data science here. So it's unlikely that you are going to have a machine learning algorithm that is that, that does not have false positives or false negatives. And who is it that's general, who generally bears the brunt of poor decision-making that, that is the result of a, you know, a bad output from a machine vision algorithm. And, and usually it's, it's already marginalized individuals. It's people of color, especially in the case of machine vision, a black man and, and, and black women. So that's why you see now municipalities in the United States, some who have just outright banned the use of machine vision um, from their own policing services. There's pressure here as well on, on the Canadian side to ensure that police do not use machine vision when it comes to pursuing investigations. Well, it seems like these challenges are only going to bedevil us even more in the future because there's always going to be temptations to use technological solutions, which have the appearance of being cheaper or better able to handle large numbers of of things, but yet uh, have so many complications built into them uh, that the human bias is just wired into the software uh, in the ways that you've described. So I think the stuff that you're doing now, this consulting firm that you've put together is is going to be very relevant for, and increasingly so, over the next uh, decade or two because of uh, how we how we do things these days. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I mean, I maybe I'll also add to that a lot of the data that's being collected right now, currently we just have too much to the point where we can't analyze it. So it's being stored. And human beings are generally identified as the bottleneck of the data analytics process, right? So I think about how back in 2012, the US Air Force alone collected about 24 years of video footage. Human beings can't analyze that, right? We're, we're limited for just from a physiological perspective. And predictive analytics are the solution uh, you know, as, as some as some proponents will argue, is the solution to to this, this sort of avalanche of, of of data. But currently, we have more data now than than we that we analyze, especially on the U.S. military side. Most of the data that they've collected from Jays and from the War on Terror, it's it's sitting it's sitting on store on servers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as 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 long as we are collecting uh, collecting data, then there certainly will be, I think, a, a role for predictive analytics and, you know, big data solutions generally. Mm -hmm. And I'm personally, I feel pretty optimistic about the data science community's response to some of these socio-technical challenges. Companies like big, big tech companies included have, I think, been very vocal about the need to integrate ethical design into the, into the uh, AI pipeline, into the AI design pipeline. Some people might say, you know, is this is this eth- ethics washing? Um, are they are they doing this sincerely, or is this a PR stunt? I think I mean, I think it depends on the company, obviously, but the ground level, anyway. People working on AI, I think, have reacted pretty positively to a number of the interventions presented mm-hmm. by social scientists and people within the humanities as well. Well, great. Uh, I think it's really important to have people like you out there thinking about these problems because I don't think we should leave these things just up to the scientists to figure out the best ways to to scan pictures or scan videos. That the existence of big data requires the existence of people like yourself asking the big questions of how to handle big data. So I really appreciate you getting a chance to giving us a chance to talk to you about this stuff, and I'm really glad that that you have the uh, ability to to work in these areas. I think, Sarah, that you're making a major contribution and it'll only get more important in the years to come. So thanks for speaking to us today on Rhythm, and we wish you luck as you finish your postdoc and go on to bigger things in this area. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.
for this week's R&R segment, I've got a couple of traditional selections and then an, an, an untraditional one. Uh, first, Queen's Gambit. It was hot last year, and it, today is the day that it was nominated for a bunch of Emmys. I only got to it late in the pandemic, but it was a really engaging watch. I am not a chess fan, but it was a really interesting drama. Had a fair amount of comedy in it, showing about this girl's development into a chess master, uh, going off eventually to, to face off with the Russians, which is always a fun Cold War kind of thing to do. So I recommend that. Second, a show that just dropped. It's actually been around for a couple of years, but it's finally making its way to Canada and the United States called Wellington Paranormal. It takes place in the what they do in the shadows world. It is founded by, created by Waitiki Pekka, uh, the man behind what we do in the shadows, the man behind Thor Ragnarok. And it basically is a mockumentary of a, a bunch of police officers in Wellington, New Zealand, who are dealing with all kinds of strange goings on. And I've watched the first couple episodes and it's delightful. Just two wonderfully incompetent cops and their pretty incompetent superior dealing with things like aliens, cows and trees, and people being possessed. Those are just the first couple episodes. A lot of fun, really silly, really nice distraction from things of today. The third thing, which is an expensive recommendation. I just got an Oculus. An Oculus is a VR thing from Facebook. It's a really high quality VR, at least compared to the thing where you just attach a phone to your face. And I've been playing a bunch of different games, uh, playing one that is basically Ultimate Frisbee in space. And yes, I've been enjoying that. And then another one, which is roller coasters. You get to ride roller coasters through, you know, Jurassic Park, essentially, or other, other places. And those are a couple of free games that come that you can download. I've also played a Star Wars game and I've got another Star Wars game lined up to play. Just a different kind of experience and doesn't require, require the the same kind of button pushing that a PlayStation or an Xbox does. And I, I've had no luck and passed the first stages of most of the PlayStation games I, I bought last spring at the onset of the pandemic. So those are my recommendations for this week. All three help uh, to escape reality. And I think we can all use more of that these days. Uh, be well this summer, get outside, enjoy, enjoy the weather while we have it. And uh, of course, if you haven't, get your second shot. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds at Thank you.